Friends, your greatest need and mine this morning, as it is true for us every morning we get together, uh, is to have Jesus Christ held out to us, to have his righteousness offered to us and heralded to us so that through faith in him, we might know that we have been reconciled to God. That is our greatest need. And thanks be to the Lord, we have been able to sing those truths this morning. We've been able to pray them and hear them read from Scripture. We'll be able to partake of those truths later on when we come to the Lord's table. And now we get to look to God's Word and sit under the preaching of a wonderful passage this morning. Please join me in prayer, and let's go to God and ask Him for His help as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our prayer is simple. We pray that you would help us by your Spirit as we look to your Word. And we pray that by your Spirit, working through your Word, we pray that we would be affected and changed today. And we pray that we would leave here whether we consciously realize this or not, we hope we do. Whether we feel this emotionally or not, we hope we do. But we pray that we would leave here today more in awe of Jesus, more grateful for him, more hopeful in him, more reliant upon him, and more secure in him. We pray these things for us. We desperately need them. And we know that they bring you glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, here at CBC, we talk often about understanding the Bible from a redemptive historical perspective. One of the reasons that we talk about that, understanding all of Scripture in, great, in light of, excuse me, the great story of the Bible, God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ, applied by His Spirit, all to the praise of his glory. One of the reasons we talk like that is because that is how the New Testament writers understood the scriptures. It is how the New Testament apostles, in writing the New Testament portion of the Bible, inspired by the Spirit, as they looked back on what we call the Old Testament scripture, they understood it clearly in this redemptive historical way, with Christ at the center. Psalm 110 is our text for this morning. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Verse 1 of Psalm 110 is the Old Testament verse that is cited and alluded to more than any other verse in the New Testament. I said this about Psalm 73 recently when I preached it and we considered it together that I would almost consider preaching it once a year because it's so good. In studying this this week, I was excited for it. I would happily preach this psalm every single year of our church's life because of how important it is. There are some portions of scripture that are more important than others, and that does not discredit or discount the inspiration of it all. But this is a massively important, awesome text that we get to consider today. Psalm 110 I'll go ahead and lay my cards out on the table, is completely about the divine kingship of the Messiah. It is completely about the divine kingship of the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. 
It is one of a number of psalms that are referred to as messianic psalms. The difference, though, is that all of those other messianic psalms, in some measure, in some way, reference an earthly king as well. They point through an earthly king to the Messiah. This text is not like that. To quote Charles Spurgeon, just so that you don't think that I am sort of going alone here, one of our Baptist forebears, the great preacher in England in the 19th century, he said of this psalm, David, the author, is not the subject of it, even in the smallest degree. David, the author, is not the subject of it, even in the smallest degree. I agree wholeheartedly. This psalm is exclusively about Jesus, written by David, about the greater son that would come from his line, who would reign and rule forever as king and priest and judge. So now, if you have your Bibles, if you do, open them up to Psalm 110. You may already be there. The ambitious amongst us, first Sunday of January the, or of the new year, excuse me, January the 6th, 2019, you're eager and ready to go. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it's okay. We will put the words from Psalm 110 up here on the screen for you to be able to follow along with us. It will help you if you have a Bible to look at. Let me read God's word for us now. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So what I want to do first is to consider the text directly. And we will consider the text under four points. I'm going to outline us for it, outline it for us, excuse me, that way. Four points. Point number one for our consideration. Christ reigns in and from heaven. Christ reigns in and from heaven. You see in the heading inspired by the Holy Spirit that David is the author. I have already alluded to that, none other than King David himself. We have considered David's life and his place in Scripture at a number of other points, even in this sermon series through a portion of the psalm. So I will not do any more of that right now. I leave that to you. Jesus affirms David's authorship of this psalm when he cites it himself in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus says, when David wrote this, David wrote this in the Spirit, it is not debated at all amongst scholars or anyone else through Christian history that David is the author of this psalm. And that does matter as we think about the greater David who would come after him. But in verse 1, we see that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Right, the covenant name of God. The Lord says to my Lord, Adonai, my, my master, my superior, sit at my right hand. So 
Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we're going to unpack this psalm in a number of ways through this time together. So some of what I say right now might seem like just sort of a broad stroke overview, and that's okay. Do not be alarmed. There is something clearly about David's Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, that is more excellent than his humanity. This is why he is called the Lord of David, who is his father. So Jesus deals with this, and we'll look at this more later, in the Gospels, when he asks the question that no one can answer. Whose son is the Christ? Everybody, everybody agreed it's David's son. So then Jesus points to this verse and says, well, how then, why then does David call him Lord? Why does he call him master if this Messiah is his son? There is something about Messiah that is greater than his humanity. He is not simply a son of David. As Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, near the very end of our Bibles, he says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Not just the descendant, but the root of David. David ultimately came by my doing. And then I also descended from him according to the flesh. Jesus, in other words, the Messiah, the Christ, is both son of David and son of God. As Paul writes in the early verses of his letter to the Romans, he writes that Jesus, the Messiah, descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Son of David, Son of God. That is who this Messiah is. That is who David's Lord is that we are looking at and considering from verse 1 of our psalm today. When David says what he does, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That language anticipates what we might call the exaltation of Christ. His exaltation meaning his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and then his sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15, that famous chapter in the New Testament where Paul writes of the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus and then the implications of his resurrection for us. He alludes, Paul does, in that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, to Psalm 110 in a couple of different ways. In verses 22 through 25 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, that meaning Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, excuse me, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. That's verses 5 and 6 of this psalm. We'll think about that later. And then Paul writes, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, this whole idea of Christ being seated at the right hand of God the Father is just understood. Ephesians 1.20, Paul talks about the power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
It's just concurring over and over again with what David wrote in Psalm 110. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The words of David in Psalm 110 assume this glorious exaltation of the Christ. Peter, as well, in his first letter that we have in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3 and verse 22, he speaks of baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Sounds just like what David wrote hundreds and hundreds of years before the Christ would come. Now the significance for us of the Christ, David's Lord, being seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of Yahweh, the right hand in general, and certainly the right hand of God is a place of honor. The Messiah is honored above all. It is also a place of power and authority. The Christ, the Messiah, God the Son, shares in the rule of God the Father. Good will, excuse me, God wills ultimately put all of Christ's enemies in submission to him. You see that at the end of verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That doesn't mean that Christ is seated at his right hand until that's accomplished. It just means I'm going to do this. God has said, God the Father has said, I am subduing all of the enemies of God the Son, the Christ. They will be put under his feet forever. You can bank on it. No matter who rises against the Christ in his kingdom, the Christ in his kingdom shall remain unmoved and unmovable. All who attempt to overthrow Christ and his kingdom will be finally ruined. We know that from those words in Psalm 110 and verse 1. Second point for our consideration as we outline this wonderful text. Point two, Christ's reign is spiritual. So point one, Christ reigns in and from heaven. Point two, Christ's reign is spiritual. Let's look at verses two and three together. Now you see the language of the Lord, Yahweh again, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. In these couple of verses, when you see that you and your language, that's talking about the Christ, right? So Yahweh sends forth from Zion, the holy city, the mighty scepter of the Messiah. The Lord, in other words, has seen to it that the Christ will rule in power. The scepter, right, is an image of power and rulership over subjects. It's also language, that scepter language, rings of Genesis 49 and verse 10, where early on in God's word, the 12 sons of Jacob, you know, Israel, the 12 tribes, they're all, all of those sons receive a blessing from their father at his death. And the blessing given to Judah, the tribe from which Jesus would come, is this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The lion of the tribe of Judah would come. The one who would rule all things. That scepter language matters. The Lord has determined that the Christ would reign over all. The Christ also, we see, tail end of verse 2, will rule in the midst of his enemies. So this right here is an indication of the spiritual nature of Christ's reign. 
Right? In the midst of his enemies, he's ruling in a spiritual way. In a world filled with hostile spiritual power and darkness of all kinds, Christ reigns. Now the rule of Christ will be consummated at the end of history. And then it will be more obvious than it even is now. His reign, though, is spiritual. Especially in this time in which we find ourselves. In addition, you see, he rules, the Christ does, not by coming in power himself yet. He will. He will come in power visibly, bodily, gloriously at the end of history. But for now, he actually rules in a spiritual way through his people. Look with me at verse 3. Your people, that's again the people of the Messiah, right? Your people will offer themselves freely. They will volunteer freely on the day of your power. Or it could be rendered the day you lead your forces into battle. Your people will give themselves and volunteer freely for you. Now the fact that verse 4 is coming, the verse about Jesus being a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the Savior, the mediator between God and man, that affects how we should understand even verse 3. I would encourage us to see verse 3 as referring to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. The advancement of the kingdom of the Messiah rather than a depiction of final judgment. That will come later as we think about Christ reigning as judge. So in other words, as we look at verse 3, we could understand it this way. The day of the Messiah's power or the day he leads his forces into battle is referring to a spiritual war that is fought even now. A spiritual war that has been fought through history. A war that is fought by faith. And it's fought with the gospel, not the power of the sword, right? It's fought by faith, and it's fought with the gospel. And it is fought by the willing servants of the Messiah who are arrayed, you see it here, in holy garments. What on earth does that mean? Arrayed in holy garments. I would suggest that these holy garments would be none other than those garments that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The garments washed in the blood of the Messiah himself. Those are the only holy garments that we would ever have to put on in service to the king. Garments that he himself has purified through his perfect life, his sacrifice, his resurrection. The language here at the end of verse 3, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours, is a little bit obscure to us. You might be reading that or maybe you read it this week and thought, yeah, I don't know exactly what to do with that. I would count myself among the number who see this as language pointing to the expansion of Christ's people. So reason with me for just a second. The womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. From the womb of the morning, the youth, the dew of your youth, or the dew of your race, your offspring, it could even be rendered, right? Would be Christ. So the Youth, the race, the offspring, the people who would belong to Messiah are compared to the dew that covers the earth, right? The dew, as you know, covers everything in the morning. Like the whole, as far as you can see, is covered in it. This condensation that develops on the grass and on various other things, even on your car, right? It's massive, the dew is. It's born out of the womb of the morning. It's massive in its scope. 
though its coming is imperceptible to us. So it is with Christ's kingdom. Massive in scope, the children, the youth, the offspring of Messiah are numerous, a multitude that no one can count. And yet the growth and the building of the kingdom of God is imperceptible to us even now. And it certainly has been for Christians through history because it involves things that are unseen. It is a spiritual war. We don't have eyes to see what the Lord is doing. That's the analogy there that I think David is making in verse three. You have the text in front of you, and so you can judge my exposition. Let's move to point three, the third point of our outline of Psalm 110. If number one was Christ reigns in and from heaven, point number two is that Christ's reign is spiritual. Point three is that Christ reigns as priest. Christ reigns as priest. Let's put our eyes on verse number four. Our consideration of this verse right now will be very brief. We will come back to more detail later. You see in the text, the Lord, again, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel has sworn, and it's certain he's not going to change his mind, not that he ever does. He's certainly not changing his mind about this. You, the Christ, the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah has been established as the forever high priest of the people of God. The fact that, this is important for us to just observe, the fact that the Christ is established as a priest forever, that language, indicates that he is no mere man. Because that office, the honor of the office of high priest, with every other one of them, save this Melchizedek guy that we're going to talk about later, that honor, that office, ended with the death of that man. So when Aaron died, he ceased to be high priest, right? And everyone after him. To be the high priest forever means that he lives forever to make intercession for his own, Hebrews 7.25. Only one who lives forever could be established as the forever high priest of God's people. You also have probably noticed already, as we've thought about the fact that Christ the Messiah will reign as a king. He also now has been established as a priest. He is a king of whom David was a type. He is a priest of whom Melchizedek was a type. So he is both king and priest. You've probably heard that before. This is where that comes from. Texts like Psalm 110. We're going to move now to our fourth point of our outline, Psalm 110. Point three that we just considered, Christ reigns as priest. Number four, Christ reigns as judge. Christ reigns as judge. Let's look at verses five through seven. The Lord, now notice that's not capitalized. That's that Adonai word again. That's that David's Lord, David's master word that describes the Christ, the Messiah. So the Messiah is at your right hand. Well, who are we talking about? We're talking about the Lord Yahweh now. The Lord, the Messiah, who sits at the right hand of Yahweh, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will come as judge. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, rulers, leaders. He will shatter them over the wide earth. No exceptions, right? This sounds very much like Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Where John, by the inspiration of the Spirit, says, 
that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Answer, no one. This language also sounds remarkably similar to much of the language that we would read in Revelation chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I think Bruce is going to try to get Revelation 19 verses 11 and following up on the screen for us. And just listen to this, this language of the Messiah shattering kings on the day of his wrath, executing judgment, filling the nations with corpses, shattering leaders and rulers over the wide earth. Listen to this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is one of those, like, Jesus is awesome passages. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, right? He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, a scepter, perhaps. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, chiefs, leaders, rulers over the wide earth, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped worship his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. He will fill, verse 6, Psalm 110, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Those are fighting words. This is no joke, right? This is serious. This is holiness of God, righteous wrath of God poured out against sin in a way that is frankly terrifying. Psalm 110 goes on as we make our way back there into verse 7. He, Messiah, will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is language that's an allusion to the conduct of a brave military leader. In this day, what would have been common in the midst of warfare, the great warriors, the great kings and generals of armies would not have taken time in the midst of war to stop for leisure and refreshment. The idea is that a great warrior a tenacious, relentless warrior would simply stop and drink from the brook that was by the road and would continue pursuing his enemies. 
It's an illusion that David is making here. And therefore, because of the relentless pursuit of Christ's enemies by Jesus himself, he will lift up his head in victory. That's what that word, that phrase means. Lifting up of the head is a phrase, and a, it's a uh, way to communicate victory. David is comparing Christ to a great warrior. Christ will swiftly and relentlessly pursue his enemies to destroy them. And Christ will be victorious. Now in all of this, I trust you feel a tension that I at least want to acknowledge quickly. Both of these things are true. Christ warmly invites all men to himself. Whosoever will may come. And anyone who comes, I will never cast away. John 6, 37. And at the same time, all those who remain rebellious, all those who remain stiff-necked, to use a term that Scripture uses, all of those people will be destroyed by the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Both are true. Think of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is another famous messianic psalm about the divine Son of God. The language in that psalm is quite clear as to this great tension that we are exhorted to kiss the Son, to bow down joyfully and worship the Son of God, lest His wrath be kindled against us. We are told in Psalm 2 that it will not go well for those who rebel against God's Son. And at the very end of Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Both are true. He is wrathful against sin and wickedness, and he is a refuge for sinners. The question is, are we rebelling against Christ, or are we running to Christ by faith, taking refuge in him? One of the two is the posture of every human being. It's a great tension that you should feel. If you don't feel that, something might be wrong with you. But now what I want to do in the rest of our time together, we've considered an outline of Psalm 110. I want to consider three great truths that are clear from this psalm. These three great truths that we're going to consider, I'll give them to you one at a time, they are grounded in the New Testament's use of Psalm 110. So how did Jesus, how did Paul, how did Peter, how did John, how did they understand this text? And you might even say for the kind of theology geeks in the room, these are biblical, theological, redemptive, historical truths that matter a ton. Whether you're a theology geek or not, your life hangs on these truths. Number one, Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than David. Matthew 22 Verses 41 through 45 was a portion of what our brother Ron read to us earlier. That chapter is cool if you notice the pattern of where Jesus begins the, the chapter of Matthew 22 with a parable, but then the Pharisees and the Sadducees keep coming at him to test him. Right? The Pharisees test him, then the Sadducees test him, then the Pharisees test him again with the question about the greatest command. But then, as Jesus so often does, he pivots and turns the table on them. He says, okay, well, let me ask you a question. He asked them a question about the Messiah, about the Christ. Whose son is he? They answered, the son of David. We're confident. We answered well, Jesus. 
Then Jesus says, well, how is it then? Explain this to me. Riddle me this, right? How is it then that David in the spirit, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Pretty cool little bit about inspiration, right? How is it that David in the spirit calls the Messiah, the Christ, Lord? How is that possible? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he then David's son? And they can't answer. Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36. Acts, as you know, written by Luke, the same man who wrote the gospel of Luke. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The Spirit of God has just come, been poured out on men in a unique and new way. The new covenant era has been ushered in with the coming of Messiah and now the pouring out of God's Spirit as was promised in the Old Testament has happened. And Peter gets up amongst a massive throng of Jews to preach the first new covenant, full-blown new covenant sermon recorded in Scripture. What does he talk about? He has been proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. He cites Psalm 16 that we considered together a couple of months ago to demonstrate that David in that psalm was writing about the resurrection of the Christ. So he's pointing back to the Old Covenant to say, look, what has happened amongst us through Christ has been told of God for a long time. Promises are being fulfilled here. But he goes on. He says in verses 34 through 36 of chapter 2, book of Acts, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, because David went into the ground and stayed there, still there, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter then exposits that verse, Psalm 110.1, and says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. New Testament understanding of Psalm 110 and verse 1. The point of David's life, as we've thought about so many times together, David would be the first one to say yes and amen. The point of David's life was never David, ultimately. The point of David's life was not, learn from me, do what I did that's good, avoid what I did that's bad, as the main point of my life. Secondarily, sure, we can learn from David, just as we learn from the saints through history. The point of David's life was to get us to Messiah. The point of David's kingship was to point us to the Messiah King who would come, who was David's Lord and David's Savior. The point of David and the Davidic line and the Davidic kingship was and is Jesus. The main point. Jesus is the greater David. So when we see David doing things, in Scripture that are awesome. We see him doing things by the power of the Spirit, like the most famous story of them all when he slays the giant Goliath. What we ought to see is an obscure shepherd boy anointed by God to be king over God's people. The people's man, Saul, is cowering 
at the Philistine army, and in particular at this giant named Goliath. And then this shepherd boy comes to the battlefront to bring his brothers some food, and he hears this Philistine warrior defiling the armies of the living God. And he says, what is going on? He takes the king's armor and goes out and slays the great champion of the enemy of God's people. And as I said in a sermon before, to read that story and come away with like your first takeaway, here are some things that we can do is absolutely insane. The takeaway from that text is that David is pointing to his greater son who would come, who would reign as king, and who would conquer all of the enemies of the people of God. Satan named He would deliver God's people from bondage to all of their enemies. This is why David is here. And David, just like you and just like me, desperately needs the Messiah. Second great truth that we can take away from this psalm. This will be very brief because the third one will be longer. Number two, Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than angels. So angels are awesome. When we read scripture, we realize that precious moments got it wrong. So the precious moments figurines, right? They're always like angels are sweet. They look like little babies with wings and all that kind of stuff. The Valentine's candy stuff, Cupid and all that kind of business. They got it wrong because whenever angels show up in the Bible, it's like people are not like amazed in a great way. People are terrified for their lives. These creatures are magnificent and glorious and awesome in a way that is frightening. Angels are powerful. We read of great things that angels did throughout the history of redemption. And angels, we would understand, are still at work in the world today, and Jesus is greater than every one of them. Hebrews 1.13. The writer of the Hebrews references Psalm 110.1. And to which of the angels has he, God, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Answer, none of them. God has never said to an angel, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. He's only said that to one being in the history of the world, and that's his divine son, the Christ, Jesus. Thus concludes the second great truth. Now number three. The third great truth that we can see so clearly. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than Aaron. And for those in the room who might be wondering, like, hey, bro, who's Aaron? Aaron was the first high priest established under the law of Moses. So of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes was the tribe of Levi. And from that tribe, the, high, the priesthood would come. The men who would serve as priests came from that tribe. And of all of those who would serve as priests, one was chosen to serve as high priest, the great mediator, the great intercessor between God and his people. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first Levitical priest. And Jesus is greater than him. So we're going to think about that together. In verse 4 of Psalm 
1.10, we read that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you have your Bibles, turn in Hebrew, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We're getting a little Bible drill in during the sermon time today. I hope you appreciate it. We don't always get to do this, but today we do. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 4. We will look together. I have to turn there too. I thought I had left a marker. Apparently I failed. Bear with me. All right. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 4. In the context, the writer of the Hebrews is demonstrating that Jesus is the great high priest of his people and that he's greater than Aaron. He contends, you see, that Jesus is both God's son and was exalted by God to the role of high priest for the people of God. And then speaking of the high priesthood, he writes this, verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was this role of high priest. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. As he says, also in another place, this so happens to be Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ, the Messiah, did not decide on his own that he would become the great high priest of God's people but Yahweh, the Lord God, God the Father, appointed him to that role. That's the point that the writer of the Hebrews is making. Now, turn in your Bibles just very, very small amount of, of space to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. So for any in the room who have ever heard the name Melchizedek, or for anybody who reads that name in Scripture, where it shows up, and you sometimes are like, yeah, I don't really know what to do with this Melchizedek guy. Today is your lucky day. Although we don't believe in luck, right? So this is a providentially good day for you. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 7. So the background here to this whole Melchizedek thing. You were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 1 and following, gives us a summary of what happened in Genesis chapter 14. Early on in the history of God's people. Abram, before he was renamed Abraham, Abram had a nephew named Lot. Lot was taken captive in a war between two different groups of kings. There was a group of kings from Elam and other nations united together against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there was a war that happened. Well, the king of Elam and his forces were victorious. And part of what they did in victory was to take the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the valley back with them including Lot and his family. So Abram's nephew has been basically captured as a prisoner, as a spoil of war. So then we understand that Abram took men, about 318 of them, we're told, by the cover of night. They must have been some pretty awesome warriors and very shrewd. Under the cover of night with 300 men, Abram goes and we are told defeats this army and rescues the people and brings back some of the property including Lot and his family. So when Abram has come back with his men from this excursion, at this point, Melchizedek just shows up in Genesis 14. Pretty much out of nowhere. We've not heard his name before, and there he is. <coughs> Melchizedek, we're told, in Genesis 14, it's verses 18 through 20. You can look at those verses later today. 
Three verses. We're told that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And we're also told that he was priest of God Most High. Interesting. Melchizedek in Genesis 14 pronounces blessing on Abram. And then he proclaims praise to God Most High. Abram gives him one-tenth of everything that he had taken. Gives him one-tenth of the spoils. Melchizedek. And then after that, Melchizedek is mentioned no more in Genesis or in the rest of the Old Testament except in Psalm 110. That's it. And then again now in the book of Hebrews. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews chapters 4, 5, 6, 7. That's where Melchizedek shows up in the scripture. So in the context of Hebrews chapter 7, the writer to the Hebrews is contending for the fact that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. You get the theme. I can't wait to preach Hebrews. Jesus is greater than everything. So Jesus is greater than Aaron, the writer is saying. God's promises of salvation, therefore, in Christ are certain. You won't be lost because Jesus is such a great high priest. He's better than Aaron ever thought about being because the point of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood was not them. It was to point to Christ. The writer, to make that point, compares the priesthood of Jesus to that of Melchizedek. Well, why is that significant? Verse 2 of chapter 7, Hebrews, Hebrews 7. <coughs> Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, this is verse 1, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. Now, he is first, he being Melchizedek, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Smoke. King of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, the king of peace. The king of righteousness. The prince of peace, perhaps. Oh my goodness, this sounds familiar. Verse 3. He, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek was a type of the one to come. Melchizedek shows up to point to Jesus. He never began. He doesn't end. He's always been. He'll always exist. He resembles Christ. He points to Christ. Now, whether we want to talk about, you know, is Melchizedek an Old Testament manifestation of Jesus? Or was he a, a being that showed up that God sent to point to Christ? Was he an angel of some kind? We can have that conversation. Christians disagree. It doesn't matter. The point of Melchizedek is this. To point to Christ, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the great priest who didn't get started and will never end, who will reign forever and who always lives to make intercession for his people. So then the writer of the Hebrews goes on to demonstrate that Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater than Levi, it's greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And then in verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews 7, some awesome stuff here. We see that perfection was unattainable through the Levitical priesthood. See this. This matters, friends. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, 
The people received the law. So if perfection could have been achieved through that priesthood under the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? There wouldn't have been. But perfection was never meant to come through the law. Perfection was meant to come through something and someone else. To, so another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. There was a need for that. A different kind of priest was required. Jesus, the writer tells us, he came from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, and no one from Judah had ever served as a priest, let alone the high priest. But yet Jesus would. He's utterly unique in the history of God's people. Now in verses 15 through 19 of Hebrews 7, the writer compares Jesus to Melchizedek. And this is where he kind of drives the point home and drops the microphone. Verses 15 through 19. Jesus, like Melchizedek, has become a priest on the basis, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He has become, Jesus has, like Melchizedek, has become a high priest by the power of an indestructible life. Praise God. For it is witnessed of him, Jesus, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. The law was pointing to Christ. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. The point of Aaron, the point of the Levitical priesthood, the point of the entire sacrificial system that the priesthood administrated, all of it, the point of it was Jesus, is Jesus. It matters that we would read our Bibles like this. When you go to the Old Testament and you start reading the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus will come alive for you if you read it through these lenses, right? Like, oh my gosh, like all of this was never about this ultimately. It was to point to Christ and what he would do. These things matter. God reveals his holiness, his character, his righteousness. He reveals what's pleasing to him. Amen. Praise be to his name. And this is the point. Christ is. It opens up the scripture for us. Christ, I would be remiss if I didn't bring us come to a conclusion here. Staying in the book of Hebrews, Christ, we, we read in Psalm 110 and verse 1, he is seated at the right hand of God. He's seated to symbolize the fact that there is no more work for him to do because it's over. He's not working. He has accomplished his mission, his objectives. Decisively, it's over Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Comparing Jesus, his work, his sacrifice, to everything else that had come before him. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is why over and over and over and over again in the Old Covenant, sacrifices were made. The priests work all the time, round the clock. 
They didn't sit down. Christ is seated. Why? Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise the Lord. I hope that as you look at these things, and as we've spent time looking at a number of passages of Scripture, I hope that rather than thinking, okay, well, like we spent a ton of time like looking at the Bible and maybe it wasn't the most engaging sermon I've ever heard. I don't know, maybe you feel that way, maybe you don't. I pray that in your heart, by God's Spirit, that as we look at these great truths that were written by men inspired by the Holy Spirit, that your heart is stirred. And that you say, Jesus is pretty amazing. He is absolutely unique. There never has been one like him and there never will be again. He really is, really is the point of creation. He's the point of the universe to point to him, his praise, his glory. What God would do through him is the ultimate reason that anything exists. For him, through him, and to him are all things. So as we think about Christ and how awesome he is, what is our response, right? Like, well, what makes sense? What's reasonable? In light of all of these things that we've considered, it would be to worship him, right? We, we give our lives and we worship God because of what God has done in Christ. It's a response. Like, how do we honor God? With our lives, we worship we worship him. We worship Christ. We praise him for what he's done and for who he is. We stand in awe of him and we happily and joyfully bow the knee because he is Christ, Savior, Lord. He is, I pray you feel this like in your bones. He is what you need and he is all you need. That song, All I Have is Christ, is wonderful. Because if you have him, you don't need anything else. What could you need that he hasn't accomplished for you? He is your atonement. All of the sins that you've committed. If you thought for 30 seconds about the sins that you've committed in the last two weeks, I trust everyone in the room with a conscience would be horrified. He's atoned for all of them. He is your righteousness. When you get glimpses from Scripture of the holiness of God and you are taken aback by it, like, oh my gosh, God is so much more holy than I ever thought he was. What a comfort it is to know that Christ is where you stand. That you don't stand before the holy God in your own merit, but in the merits of Christ. He is the resurrection. He is your resurrection. You will get up from the dead one day bodily, in glory, in Christ because of him. He is the life, your life. You will live eternally in him. When you come to your deathbed, I'm not trying to be morbid here. I think this will comfort you. It doesn't mean. When you come to your deathbed, when any person comes to their deathbed and they reflect on their lives, no one 
No one can take confidence in his or her own good works. No one. Why? Because you will know in that moment, I will know in that moment, I could have done so much more. I could have obeyed so much more. I could have fought sin so much harder. I could have given so much more. I could have sacrificed so much more. I could have abstained from so many of those things that I even knew were worthless. How could I ever find comfort in what I've done? How could you? Christ is your righteousness. There's a story along those same lines about a man who was dying in England and a young minister who had just become pastor of the church goes to visit this dying man. He's not an old man, but this man is dying of sickness. And this man is just absolutely lamenting his life and this very thing. Like, I, I, I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. Like, how am I going to go stand before God? And the pastor keeps telling him, keeps pointing him to the good things that he's done. He keeps pointing, oh, but brother, you've done these things. Oh, but brother, we've seen this fruit in your life. Oh, but brother, look how you've changed. And the man is just not having it. He's like, no, but you don't understand. Like, I don't, I don't have what it takes to measure up to the point where this young minister is so warped out of his frame that he goes out in the front yard and he's ill. And the man's dying man's sister shows up. And she says, what on earth is going on? And he tells her, like, I can't, I'm at a loss. I can't comfort your brother. She says, well, what have you said to him? Well, I pointed this out, like, all the good things that he's done that we've all seen. I pointed this out, like how he's, his life has changed and all this fruit that we've seen. And she says, well, that's not going to do it. You must point him to Christ. You must point him to Christ and his righteousness and Christ's accomplishments in his place. And so his sister goes in the room and comforts her brother. You haven't done good enough. No way could you have ever done good enough. Yeah, that fruit that you've borne is good and it won't stand. But in Christ, you will stand before God. And the man died in a much more peaceful state. It is the only comfort we have in life and death, the righteousness of Christ counted to us by faith. How great and awesome is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King, the priest, and the judge. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us by your spirit to always fix our eyes upon Jesus. We know that it is your will that anyone who looks upon your son and anyone who trusts in him would be raised to life eternally. We praise you that that's true. And so we pray that you would give us grace that we might always look outside ourselves to Christ for our confidence before you. We pray that we would trust in Jesus completely and utterly and only. And we do pray that as we trust Christ, that you would work in us by your spirit. We want to live lives that honor you. And we pray that you would make that happen. We thank you and we praise you for Jesus, our great high priest, our great king, our great savior. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.